One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hi there and welcome to the Stop Club podcast coming to you from the top floor of my Wall Street HQ here in Dublin, Ireland. This week's episode is a bumper jargon busters where we're going to talk about when to sell stock, the importance of earnings reports for long-term investors and how dollar cost averaging might work for you. So before we start this week's episode, I just want to say that we're actually recording this podcast a few days earlier than usual. And for that reason, we're going to skip the recent news section because with the way things are happening now, it'll probably be outdated very, very fast. So we're going to skip recent news and we're going to give you a bumper jargon busters this week. But to start off with, Rory, the company we ever talk about, this is where we have a look at a company in our app that you think doesn't get the attention it deserves. What company do you want to talk about this week? Well, first of all, we're going to have to change this segment pretty soon because we're running out of companies we never talk about. <laughs> We've talked about all the companies. Yeah, companies we need to start mixing about. it up a bit. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> two companies to talk about too much. Tesla. Uh, Facebook. <laughs> now the company we're going to talk about is IDEX Laboratories. Recent enough addition to our app, they are the leaders in pet diagnostic equipment. Uh, for those not familiar with the business, they have a few different segments, but the big one, the one that investors probably want to focus on most, is their vet lab business. So these are basically diagnostic machines that the company sell into veterinary practices for a one-off fee, and then they sell them the testing strips on a per-use basis. So it's a classic kind of razor and blade model. Uh, which you'll all be familiar with from the likes of uh, Gillette or um, Cur Green Mountain or Nespresso. Uh, and that equals long-term recurring revenue, which we always love to see. Yeah. Um, and these strips, basically, uh, they test for a wide range of underlying conditions um, that, and basically give instant results back to the, back to the vet. Okay. Uh, so the company reported a few weeks ago, they saw 15% organic growth in their vet lab consumables. That's on a constant currency basis. So they're facing some currency headwinds, but still great organic growth. They have a 20% year-over-year increase in their global premium instrument installed base. Uh, so they're seeing really strong international demand. And this is one of the best businesses, I think, to be invested in if you believe it, that pet ownership and spending on pets is a long-term secular trend. So yeah. uh, 68% of households in the US currently own a pet. That's up from 56% in 1988. And Americans spend about $70 billion a year on their pets. That's uh, largely on food, but veterinary care is, is, is number two. and It's the, it's the fastest-growing segment. Uh, here's a fun fact I found while researching this. It's estimated that people spent $480 million last year on costumes for their pets. Co- <laughs> costumes? Yeah. Halloween costumes, costumes for Instagram. Does anyone follow? Maeve's not here. Maeve would be the perfect person yeah. to have on this week yeah. to talk about this. Pets and costumes on Instagram. Maeve is going to regret missing this podcast. <laughs> well, yeah. But like animals have their own Instagram accounts now. Maeve's yeah. dog has an Instagram account. Really? Yeah, great yeah. Instagram account. Give it just, a shout out there. I can't remember the actual... <laughs> Frank. It's Frank, but I don't know yeah. what the actual uh, ticket would not ticker god been, work, <laughs> working, been working in You've this been business brainwashed. too long. <laughs> we'll include it in the show notes. Yeah, we'll put it in the Frank. show notes, uh, Frank's Instagram account. But um, just when you're talking about that, Rory, I remember, I don't know if this was your hunch or this was research you cited before, but 
that you you mentioned before that millennials because millennials are waiting longer and longer to have kids that this is why such a massive amount of money has now been spent on pets that pets are kind of replacing kids yeah you're going to make me repeat a term that I really wish I wouldn't have to which is fur babies is is what they refer to them as Um, awful yeah so millennials we know are waiting longer and longer to get married for various reasons being more career focused Uh, and so yeah instead of having the kind of Lot, the commitment of a of a child, they're opting instead to buy pets, um, which is still a big commitment. Yeah, and uh, as a knock on effect of that, then spending more on veterinary. Yeah, spending, having smaller families as well. They end up, you know, if you're if you're a pet in a family of six children, you probably don't get as much attention as if you're a, uh, a pet, uh, in, a fur in, baby, in, yeah, <laughs> fur baby in a family of you know one or two children. Uh, so yeah, there, I mean, look, this is this has been a trend that's been going on. Uh, for about 15 years now. It's been growing rapidly in the US. Europe's kind of uh, catching up very rapidly as well. Um, they reckon, the, uh, IDEX reckon they'll bring in about $2.4 billion this year. It's a 10% increase on last year's numbers. I think what you're going to see is those numbers are going to are going to start accelerating, not decelerating, even though the company's quite big. Um, they also have a wonderful management team led by a guy called Jonathan Ayers. Uh, he's been at he's not a founder, but he's been at the job since 2002, and he really does treat this business like an owner. He owns. He's uh, given up cash payments in favor of stocks uh, many times in the past, and he, he owns close to two percent of the business, which is really unusual for someone who's not a founding member of, the, of a business this size. So yeah, that's IDEX Laboratories. It's uh, up 20 percent since we added it uh, about six months ago, I think, and. Um, yeah, great business to, to get involved in. And would they have any competitors in their field? Yeah, there's there's competitors. Uh, I mean, so so one of their uh, segments is um, reference labs. So okay. uh, so vets taking blood tests and sending them off to be tested and getting the results back. There's a couple of competitors in, in, in that space. One of them was uh, their biggest rival was recently acquired by Mars. Um, and then there's you know there's various other businesses that that do testing on animals and they also have a livestock business. So there's a bit of competition there. But really, in terms of the the desktop uh, test kits that they're selling out, they are the leaders. So okay, um, yeah, great business. So anyway. pop quiz: How much have you spent in your life personally on pet care? Not the uh, procurement of a pet, but its opex, <laughs> the <laughs> ongoing. <laughs> upkeep of you know personally now not your family not your folks not back at home yeah. but in your life now as an adult mine would be zero I've yeah. never I've never had my own pet like we've got family pets mm-hmm. we've mm-hmm. many family pets and there's probably yeah. been a lot of money spent on them but yeah personally like I live in a, a very small apartment so I don't really have a pet yeah I mean I me either but if, if I asked my father that question yeah. he'd probably flip this desk over <laughs> <laughs> and if May was here that average would shoot right on up yeah. I, mine is very low we haven't had a dog and we haven't had a cat we've had more uh, micro pets I guess um, micro hamsters goldfish <laughs> that kind of stuff but I think a dog is headed our way this summer so I'd imagine I'll be all about Idex in about a year from now but, but like we have a family dog my parents to and you know he was sick there a few years ago and it's at a time like that you know you like obviously I love my dog but you you might not see them as an extension of your family until they get sick and then there's you know you, you would put out a lot of money just to for whatever they need surgery and things like that and you do here I know True Panion is another company we have pet insurance and that's another massive uh, massively growing field and it's you know when it comes down to the the hard times like that, you, you find out how much money you will spend on a pet. Yeah, there's actually, um, uh, sorry to put you off there, there's actually a, a psychological thing where people spend more, or give more attention 
to uh, things they have to look after them yeah, themselves. So the vulnerability, I suppose. Yeah, them, you yeah. know, it's like they can't do it themselves. So, you know, when a pet owner has to look after something sick, it's like it will put huge amounts of money behind it. Yeah. Probably more money than they put into their own health care or more attention than they put into their own health care. Um, and yeah, it's just this, this company's riding the wave of that. Cool. So that was the company we never talk about, and that was IDX, the ticker symbol is right? It's IDXX. Cool. Um, so as I said at the start of the show, we're going to give you an extra long Jargon Busters this week. For this Jargon Busters, we've decided to tackle, rather than taking individual questions, we've decided to tackle some of the most commonly asked questions we get here at My Wall Street about investing. So the kind of broad strokes, the most frequent questions that come in for us. So the first one we have here is 100% the most frequent, I think. It's when to sell. Can I take that one? Yeah. My most admired investor who I've had the fortune of knowing personally is David Gardner, who's one of the co-founders of The Motley Fool. Long before my Wall Street was born, I was reading and following David's thought leadership as uh, a retail investor. And as mentioned in our last podcast, I passed on some of the brilliant opportunities that he spotted and pointed out like 20 years ago, such as the Amazon stock that I passed on uh, while lying on a beach as I guffawed at its, I think it was six or eight billion dollar valuation. <laughs> so having the privilege and advantage of standing on the shoulder of giants, I and we as a business have learned from a study that David conducted on every single one of his buy and particularly his sell recommendations across 25 years of running newsletter services. Um, and that study, therefore, has the advantage of big data, or very, at the very least, large data, a lot of data, and also data over two plus decades. Yeah. So we're talking about very real insights based on behaviour, specifically cell behaviour. So if in order to prepare to answer this question, I, I looked at a, a study that David and his team conducted under Stock Advisor service five years ago. And um, his average return in that service was around, well, it was very high, like 210% per stock. However, had he never sold a single stock from that service, it would instead be 261% returns per stock. Um, and he, again, ran the same study on his co-founding brother's sell decisions and had a similar finding okay. that had his brother Tom never sold the stock uh, he too, his average would also be up. So the point is that looking and standing on the shoulder of giants or looking from the shoulder of giants we we have learned, I've observed that selling with a service is not often the best thing to do. Yeah. In my own personal life I have repeatedly said here and to the two of you and to anyone else who cares to listen that all the worst decisions I've made as an investor were sales because yeah. I'll generally move to the sell button in my own personal trough of disillusionment, which is usually when the stock has just done nothing but shed value. When very often the opposite was the right action to take, which was buy more. Yeah. So I'm not trying to apply big rules to individual decisions because actually what we're talking about is a a storyboard for each individual stock that you own. But if we do look at the big story, never selling is an easy strategy that big data supports on improving your overall returns. So looking at David's rule breaker service, again, he conducted a study at the same point in time with similar results. So it's inaccurate for me to say that you should never sell anything 
but we have learned from greats and we here at My Wall Street will figure a way to tell our valued customers when we think selling can yield short-term gains uh, or at least when not to buy a particular stock in, in our app. But for now, we're living uh, the immortal words of Warren Buffett, who said, if you aren't willing to own a stock for 10 years, don't even think about owning it for 10 minutes. And my Wall Street is not even five years old yet. So we are living good practice. Mm. So when it comes to the product that we have built with such care, it's clear we haven't sold any stock. Now, 10 or maybe 11 stocks have been bought out from under our feet, uh, of which nine of them were big winners for our, for our subscribers. Uh, and we know and we keep an acute eye on those stocks that haven't won since we tapped them. And uh, we are leaning on big data and big learnings from bigger businesses that have been around longer than us and using that data to support um, our belief that never selling is the best strategy. So so when we say, because you know it's nearly the unofficial model here at My Wall Street, never sell, we it's more of a mindset than a literal instruction. Is that fair to say that you're you're yeah, if you're if you're going into a position with this never sell mindset, you know you you know if you're going to buy it as Warren Buffett said, you you you're, you have to go in with the idea of holding for at least ten years. So that's where the never sell comes. But it's not you know actual practical advice. You obviously have to sell some stocks at some point to realise some gain. Unquestionably so, and and there are going to be stock. I mean, we say there there's no angels on Wall Street or whatever re- religious uh, um, equivalent <laughs> you care to impose on your investments. But no, no one out there is watching the stocks you've bought to make sure that you will at least get the price you paid back at some point in the future. And there are stocks that you'll buy that inevitably become dogs and they yeah. fall 99% and won't claw their way back up. Yeah. Uh, I think of a stock I owned 20 plus years ago called JDS Uniphase, which did fiber optical switching equipment and a whole bunch of other equivalent geeky stuff. And, and it actually fell 99%. And, you know, in order for it to grow from that point all the way back to what I paid, it would have had to grow hundreds fold. And um, I, I at that time, I, I decided to dump it. And, yeah. and it did grow multiple fold from there. But that was a dog. And I, I could see that it wasn't going to get its way back to the highs I paid. So there are individual stories to require, mm. I suppose, an individual case study. But I think most investors will enjoy far better returns if they just decide a broad rule, which is I'm never selling anything. Yeah. But I'm like, sorry, James, like in the, you know, on, on a practical side, when you do sell them, is there any kind of triggers where you go like, you know, I'm, I, I, I don't want to own this stock anymore? Yeah, is, there are, the, absolutely. I mean, my number one reason now for selling a stock is there's been a strategic drift or they're not doing what they set out to do or the reason I bought into the business has changed. Yeah. So like when you buy into a company, you obviously really believe in their future trajectory or what management says their future um, path is. So if that changes, obviously, it's not the same company you've invested in at that point. Are they addressing an opportunity with a product or opportunities with products? And if they decide that they're chasing something new, or indeed chasing something new with something new, if you know what I mean. Mm. It's it's a it's a different investment, mm. you know. So, Roy just uh, spoke about IDEX, and if we went, if we heard that IDEX was moving into um, pet retreats, 
you know, um, pet uh, hotels. Um, they it's, have an it's, investor in Maeve Redmond anyway. They would. They would. Maeve is really going to regret missing today's episode. Yeah. Um, but the, uh, the, there, no doubt that that is a, a, a diversified product that yeah. kind of is in their family. But it is a new thing to consider. And we are considering IDEX through the lens that Rory explained. And I think to say, I pay far, far more attention to those type of things than the quarterly numbers, which keep rolling around every 12 weeks and uh, are a focus of attention. And they get a huge amount of heat because they're easy. I mean, numbers are easy to evaluate because you stick them on a weighing scales beside last the quarter before's numbers or the year ago quarter's numbers. Like numbers are supremely right-brained uh, or left-brained, sorry, left-brained uh, activity, whereas we're right-brained investors where we, we are going more with the art than the science. I remember you saying something to me, I think, when I just started working here, which is in terms of when to sell. Um, I don't know where you uh, stole this from, but uh, it was, uh, <laughs> you said something like, imagine someone, imagine your broker accidentally sold all your shares and called you the next day and said, look, sorry, I did that, uh, whoops. Which ones would you buy back instantly? And the ones that you wouldn't buy back, it's not a sign that you yeah. sell them, but possibly a sign that you need to reconsider. I stole that from my own life experience, okay. Rory. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that is something I, I contemplate. And I, I kept an Excel spreadsheet for years on end um, with the tickers of the stocks I own on the left-hand column. And I had a fixed date every month where... I would answer that very question, which was, if all were accidentally sold, which ones would I rebuy? Mm. Yeah. And if the answer, if you keep answering yes, well, then you should stick with it. Yeah. Then if there's if there's a sequence of months where you're not sure, it's a no, you could consider it for sale, for selling rather. But I don't make a sell decision quickly. It takes probably a year to get there because yeah, yeah. I contemplated for the longest time because I know that long-term investing works. It, I've seen it. I, I mean, I, I, I should really do a count on the total number of stocks I've owned since I was in college. I'd say it's in the top end of the hundreds. It shouldn't be, yeah. you know. Um, but I'd say before I was 30, I'd owned 80% of the stocks that I yeah. have owned to this point in my life, and I'm 44 now. Yeah. That's an important point too, is taking the emotion out of a sell. Uh, Rory, I know you've spoken about that before. That uh, is it Jason Moser maybe said before, that if, you, if you're considering selling a stock, go to bed. It's going to hey. have a think about it. Yeah, yeah. paraphrasing here, but he said, you know, take look at it again in three days and see yeah. how you feel. Um, you know, the, the times when I've sold stock, it's usually been just dragging for yeah. months where I've just, I just, yeah. you just kind of get sick yeah. of looking at it. It's yeah. just, you know. Like, yes, there is that effect. And I have sold stocks and never looked back on ones I just couldn't bear the sight of any longer. Yeah. And and that that is answering the, the same question in a different way. You just, uh, you've lost faith. You don't yeah. believe in it. You, you don't care to see this thing in your line of sight yeah. going forward. Rory, you recently wrote an expert opinion piece about this. I did, yeah. Kind of uh, summarizes what Emma just said. There, yeah, so. it's a few of the practical things. You know, if you want to sell a stock, kind of questions you're supposed to ask yourself before you, you yeah. get that. Sort of just practical questions to ask yourself and and decide if you're going to sell, why you're selling, and and. and you know, are you going to regret this sell? Are you going to, are you going to keep watching the stock after you sell yeah. it? That's, a, that's usually a sign that you, 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 probably shouldn't. you probably shouldn't. Yeah, cool. So that was about selling. The next thing I want to ask about, and Emmett, something you mentioned briefly there is earnings reports. So we've just come, we're coming out of the tail end of earnings season now. Um, and, you know, it's a time a lot of people get very hyped up and they're, they're mm -hmm. seeing how companies have performed over the last 12 weeks. Um, Emmett, you've spoken before that you're not a fan of, you know, the quarterly earnings report cycle. But... 
it's still a good check in on how a company's you know getting on, kind of working towards the goals they've set out. So how when you are looking at an earnings report of a company, what are the things you are looking for? I'd almost go as far as to say I resent quarterly reports because <laughs> they they almost demand that you take a look at them. And when you own 20 plus stocks, as I do in my folio, or indeed in this business, we are managing 100 plus, 100 plus stocks. You can't ignore it. But I'd go, we're, we're professionals. It's our job to watch it. But uh, retail investors, I shouldn't be presented with this this like fire hose of information. It's just wrong. Yeah. And President Trump has asked of the SEC, uh, I think it's the SEC or maybe FINRA, yeah. probably SEC, for that rule to change. It's, yeah. it's, it's mandatory. If you list your business on the US exchange, it's not discretionary. You you must do a certain level of reporting every quarter. It's different here in Europe, isn't it? It is, yeah. yeah. And uh, depending on the exchange, uh, I think... Uh, where manage, management can slip up in the US is providing quarterly guidance. They can, I don't think they're mandatorily obliged to provide guidance. No. They are. I they, robot they, exactly. So I admire more those companies. They say, well, here's what we'll have done by the end of this financial year and we're on track. And yeah. that's a more grown up conversation, but it creates a huge pressure. I, I mean, as the CEO and founder of this business, I have conversations with shareholders in my Wall Street and rightfully I answer all their questions about how we're doing and I do so on a quarterly basis. Um, and I I have found that the pace of updates, it comes at you quickly. Yeah. It just comes very, very yeah. quickly. I was going to say, when you said the end of earnings season, I didn't think there was an end anymore. They yeah. all just seem to stretch into each other it's, now. It's, it's never ending. That's right, yeah. It used to be Ulta's report that we used to go, oh, yes, we're done. <laughs> yeah. But now it's like there's another one the next yeah, week and it all starts of, over you, again. You get kind of two weeks in the middle. It also says, that it, like, it, I think it also puts incredible pressure on managers to hit short-term targets. Yeah. You, know, you can't, like, if you're running a business and you're trying to think of it with a five, ten-year time horizon to have to hit targets every single 12 weeks mm-hmm. is just totally dilutes that mm. and you know if you if if we talk about wanting to own a stock for 10 years as 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 you should you should be thinking that's that's 40 quarters mm. you're going to own this company for so so one of them isn't going to be the change in the, in the entire thing you know it's not something you should worry too much about yeah yeah, yeah. but yeah. so back to the question but what do you look for so we saw there maybe if you want to take Chipotle as an example, so Chipotle's um, last quarter report was really good. We saw same-store sales up and things like that. And it, I think it was a good reflection of the overall movement of the company back towards its kind of, its good times, if you want to put it like that. So is it kind of a good a good check-in, but not put, pay too much well, weight to it? The word you use there is trajectory. You know? yeah. that's, that's the important word there. It's not what happened in that report. It's to see a trend performing yeah. over over a period of time that you want to check in on you want to see that it's going in the right direction yeah. it's not you, you don't have to if you miss your numbers by five ten percent it's not the end of the world it's mm. it's whether you're continuously going in a certain direction and the few times that you do really have to dig into them when you see a stock kind of violently react to a bad earnings report and you do dig in what you're looking for there is you know is is this a major dent in the business yeah. or is this a slip you know yeah. and i think you know, you can you can figure out a lot of that from looking at uh, the, what management have said about the quarter. Yeah, in the earnings um, call. Yeah, the earnings call. Like, I mean, the earnings call is really good. If something's gone really badly, going into the earnings call and just listening to the tone of management, mm. listening to the questions that the analysts are putting at them and listening to the tone of the responses, that's a good kind of barometer of, of, of 
how the business is going, I think you can you can gain a lot from that. Yeah. Elaborating on that, sorry, James, the, what I look for very truthfully is the day after the quarterly report, I just check in on the stock price, which invariably is up or down, yeah. which is the very first barometer on how the overall market has interpreted that news. I mean, we three very often would see a stock that's not in our app just jump or drop wildly mm. and we'd say what the heck happened in Acme last night and it was oh they they reported and they hit their numbers so it is uh, it really for me it provides a view of how the market currently sees the business yeah uh, I don't go a whole lot deeper than that unless there's something fundamental if we see a business move as Roy said wildly up yeah. or down 10 or 20 percent after a quarter something something material has happened but when you see a few percent up or down it's just another day at the races I'm afraid okay cool Uh, the last thing we want to talk about here in Jargon Busters is dollar cost averaging so Emmett do you want to explain what it is maybe and and why people use it as an investing strategy the dollar cost averaging is a strategy that allows an investor to buy the same dollar amount of an investment on regular intervals so the purchases occur irrespective of what the asset in, in our world, the stock's price is. Yeah. So you might decide in a dollar cost averaging strategy that you are going to buy 100 books worth of Disney on the first Tuesday of every month. Yeah. And that would go down as a dollar cost averaging strategy. Um, now that traditional, if you call it web-based retail investing for the masses has been on air for 20 years. In other words, the ability for any of us here at this room to buy stocks for the last 20 years is out there. There's enough data out there to see how dollar cost averaging has actually played out for real people who stuck with it rigorously. And I think that's really where we need to go. How has the world fared with dollar cost averaging? Because I could sit here and tell you what the textbooks say. Uh, dollar cost averaging does but I think the proof of the pudding is in the eating as they say on this side of the Atlantic um, and and to be honest I found an equal number of pros versus cons for the approach I mean the pro of dollar cost averaging is you can pre-commit to a strategy and it takes the thinking out of it and yeah. when the stock is down your 100 bucks buys more of it and when the stock is up it buys less of it and over the long run you're a winner but um but we are thinkers, like we're human beings, we're investors. We, this mindless hundred bucks a month, it just is very hard to slavishly adhere to one of these strategies mm. without superimposing something you've seen or heard or observed. Uh, and there's plenty of platforms that will allow you to set it and forget it. Mm. Um, so when I, what I can only do is bring it back to my own life's experience. And uh, I have dollar cost averaged, but not in a textbook way, the manner in which I have built my stock portfolio is, as we've discussed many times before, I, I keep an eye on all, all the stocks in my folio. And if I have a notional amount, uh, and for the first 10-ish years of my investing life, I had a notional amount, let's call it a thousand bucks. Yeah. And I, um, and this, I'm not saying that this was the best approach, but it was an approach. But if, for example, I bought a thousand bucks worth of Under Armour and found a few months later that I was below a thousand bucks, 
I would decide, do I still believe in Under Armour? Do I still like it? Do I still think it's going to be one of the mega brands of the future? Yeah. And I'd top it up to a mm. thousand bucks. I would add more money to bring it back to my notional number yeah. of the minimum I have invested in it. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's probably a term for this, but it seems like the cousin of dollar cost averaging. And it served me well because I actually, it's a hybrid. It's the, the Bride of Frankenstein's approach to dollar cost averaging. I, I am applying my thinking on top of the philosophy that your book buys more when the stock is on sale. Yeah. I think for... Um, novice investors or got people starting getting started into it. it's a good approach to take especially when you see stocks at kind of all-time highs yeah. get a lot of people asking you know should i invest in this stock it's at an all-time high uh, should i not wait for a pullback and i've given out about all-time highs the term a few times now but yeah. if if you are worried if you see this, if you if you want to invest in a company you think oh god it's it's had a great run and you know dollar cost averaging is a good way of building a position that stock over time and you you will mitigate the potential time risk that it'll drop the next day. Okay, cool. That was really helpful. Um, so that was our extended jargon busters. Um, remember, if you have any questions or kind of topics you want us to talk about, get in touch. I'll give the contact details at the end. Um, just want to point out that we have loads of new stuff in the My Wall Street app at the moment. As we've already mentioned, Rory's written a new expert opinion piece, which talks about the topic of selling our stocks as long-term investors. Um, fans of jargon busters would also like one of our new features, the My Wall Street mailbag. This is where we share some of the most interesting questions our investment team has got over the past month and um, that, that have been asked by the My Wall Street community. Um, so you can check all of this plus our new stocks, um, our new stock of the month. That's all in the My Wall Street app right now. Um, so we're moving on to the elevator pitch now. Emmett, question for you. Outside of Warren Buffett, who's your biggest investing uh, hero? Uh, David Gardner. Outside Besides of David Gardner. <laughs> Besides David Gardner, Peter Lynch. Peter Lynch. <laughs> Author of One Up on Wall Street. Uh, it's probably one of the, the biggest influences here amongst the whole investing team in my Wall Street, that book. I think it's kind of given to every new person on their first day to read. Um, so in particular, Lynch was a big advocate for um, boring companies. So he often said that the more unattractive a company sounds, the better of an investment opportunity it was. So with that in mind, the elevator pitch I've asked you both to prepare for this week is the most boring company you'd like to add to the My Wall Street app. So this is going to be a very, very exciting elevator ride. Um, who wants to go first? How long have we got? I'll give you 30 seconds. Each. This is going to feel like an hour. 60 seconds. I, I, I need longer than that because I have a bit of explaining. Do you want my 30 seconds? I'm only kidding. Um, okay. Right, okay. Anyway. So, well, I'll go first because I will stick to 30 seconds. Okay. I'm going to go with Kinder Morgan who are the US, the nation's largest owner and operator of natural gas pipelines. And they also have a whole bunch of uh, terminals, which is uh, great big yokes that you store <laughs> gas, oil and other uh, energy products in. And the reason I like Kinder Morgan is it has an asset that's very, very hard to replicate, which is pipes through yeah. under the ground. And it's paying a great dividend, which is nearly 5%, 4.9%, which they boosted very recently. Um, and it looks like their uh, income is going to grow. So I think it looks like a boring business that pays a great dividend of nearly 5% with upside potential in the stock. Okay. Is yokes a technical term? <laughs> it's, a, it's probably a Dublin vernacular, which is when you've lost a word, you go, yeah, thank you for that, Rory. A, a yoke is anything, <laughs> yeah. any object that you can touch. So I guess I should have said uh, terminal. Uh, they have a terminal business, which is storage facilities. Very good. Uh, Rory. 
Okay, I just need a little bit more time on this because okay. there's a bit of explaining to you at the start. The company I'm uh, pitching isn't actually a public company at the moment. It's owned by, it's a subsidiary of a public company and they're splitting them up next year. Okay. Um, so the, the bigger company is uh, United Technologies and the company they're going to they're gonna spin off is Otis, which is the maker of elevators. Oh, yeah. Perfect for an elevator pitch. We've all pitch. seen it. Everybody has <laughs> seen it. Yeah. Oh, brilliant. Yes. The, the, the biggest, perfect elevator pitch. Yeah. They are a 160-year-old company. Uh, its founder, Elisha Otis, didn't invent the elevator, but he did invent something almost as important, which was the elevator safety brake. Uh, and his demonstration of that brake at the New York World Fair in 1853 paved the way for the first skyscrapers because people were terrified of getting on them until they um, they saw this. So uh, the parent company, United Technologies, have admittedly kind of themselves failed to invest in the business over the last number of years. That saw them lose some ground to their biggest rivals, uh, Kona, uh, which is a Finnish company. Um, so I think as a standalone company, they'll fare better. Uh, they've the best name in the brand by far. Uh, they're known for safety. Um, they've the highest operating margins in the industry. And yeah, they've got that really sticky business model where they put in an elevator and just get, you know, decades of revenue out of it. Sounds good. So I'm not sure what I'm supposed to judge the companies on here. Is it supposed to be which is most boring or which is the better investment? Do both. <laughs> Do both. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, well, Emmett, I think yours is definitely the most boring company. Thank you very much. I, I have that effect on people. <laughs> <laughs> Rory, I'm going to give it to you for the best investment. I think uh, I like the, the synergy of a, an elevator company in an elevator pitch yeah. too. More elevator companies coming next week. <laughs> we should ask our listener base to pitch <laughs> ideas for a pitch. Yeah. So what would they like elevator pitches on? And try and keep it quirky, folks. There's another, um, <laughs> sorry to bore everyone, but there's another elevator company that actually is listed. It's called Schindler. It's the third oh, yeah, biggest. Yeah. It's listed on the yeah. Swedish, Swiss stock exchange. So yeah. it's a Swiss company. Yeah. And uh, you can go and see their returns over the last, I think they were listed in 1997. Yeah. Cost stocks were about 15-fold. Really? Yeah. Oh, go away. Yeah. So yeah, elevators are good businesses. I suppose you're not going to take an elevator out. No, that's for sure. <laughs> there was another company you had mentioned yeah, Emmett, that has been delisted recently. Chicago Bridge and Iron. I used to love it. It's a brilliant stock. It was delisted a year ago. I think it merged or was acquired. And I, as soon as you said, hey, let's pitch the most boring company, I was like, oh, CBI. But, um, <laughs> what did what does Chicago Bridge and Iron do? Uh, they they do big, great steel structures and and uh, help people build things of immense colossal value made out of iron, iron <laughs> and bridges and bridges. And bridges. Yeah. yeah, I actually uh, looked it up. They do more than bridges, but still, that was their that was their that bread was, and butter. That's their, <laughs> that's their bread and butter. So that's about it for this week's Stock Club. Don't forget about all the great new stuff in the My Wall Street app at the moment. And if there's anything you want us to discuss or explain on the next episode, make sure to get in touch. You probably know where to get us now. You can reach us on Twitter at MyWallStreet or email us at pod at MyWallStreet.com. That's P-O-D at MyWallStreet.com. If you enjoy Stock Club, please review it on iTunes or whatever podcast player you listen to it on, as it really helps us out. With that, we'll talk to you in two weeks. Happy investing. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, 
or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone.